Hey guys, it's Edge Martinez. They call me the voice of New York. And 50 years ago, hip hop started right here in New York City. And we're celebrating the five boroughs all year long. Check out nyctourism.com forward slash hip hop for cultural stories, events, interviews, and more. nyctourism.com forward slash hip hop. Hey, how's it going, everyone? This is the Go Long Podcast, part of the Go Long Network at golongtd.com. Thank you so much for making this newsletter, making this podcast part of your life. I never take that for granted. Greatly, greatly appreciate you all. And and thank you for sharing with a friend. That's how we get this thing to keep on growing into season number three uh, since launching this uh, newsletter, Going Independent. It's been a hell of a lot of fun. And yeah, I think you're going to love this one. Um, Holy cow, uh, Richie Incognito. We got him back for round two. Round one, uh, he was on a happy hour about a year ago. We did not share that on the podcast or the newsletter. It was a little extreme, but I think this one puts that to shame, honestly. Uh, There were stories to tell, stories to share. The recently retired Richie Incognito has nothing to hold back. He's an open book on just about every topic that you can imagine. We, We got into it all, pretty much. And as always, these happy hours are an opportunity for you, our subscribers at Go Long, to hang out with players from around the NFL. We've had current players on, like Allen Robinson. We've had a ton of former players on, like Leroy Butler, Eric Kramer, Olin Krutz, Frank Winters. And yes, Richie Incognito, he he touches on, well, everything, really. I mean, takes it as far back as Miami, really before that to the St. Louis days. But in Miami, the the whole quote-unquote, bullying, saga, scandal, uh, his relationship with Jonathan Martin. It may surprise you, actually. I know it surprised me. And how everything went really, really good in Buffalo for a while and then went really, really bad in Buffalo. And he slipped into another exile and he was out of football for another year and he came back with the Raiders, discussed what it was like playing with John Gruden, Mike Mayock. Obviously, he was there for all the chaos last season as well. Oh my gosh, there were war stories to share from the field, the times he's pissed players off. Um, We're talking about maybe one of the more controversial, polarizing, just flat out fascinating players uh, of a generation in any sport. And this is about as open and honest as I've heard Richie Incognito privately and for the interviews that I've done with him when I was at the Buffalo News and Bleach Report. And any conversations, interviews he's had elsewhere. I haven't heard him really open up on this all to this degree. But I guess that's what happens when, you know, you, you, have, you have a couple of drinks and you kick it with uh, some readers that go long. So we would love it if you wanted to join our community. This is season number three. We launched in November of 2020. Season number three. Uh, I just cannot thank everybody enough for wanting to read long form. The interest is there. It's unbelievably encouraging, inspiring. And if you're thinking about subscribing, you can always give us a shot on the free email list, golongtd.com, uh, and get the stories and podcasts and all that that are posted for free. And if you enjoy it, you can upgrade anytime. Uh, so that option is always there for you. And, and obviously, these happy hours are about you. I, I want to try to find players that you want to hang out with. So email me, golongtd at gmail.com. My DMs on Twitter are always open. If there's a player you want to hang out with, let me know. We'll track them down and we'll have some fun. So uh, yeah, this is an opportunity for everybody here on the podcast feed to get a sense for what's cooking over at Go Long. Would love to have you join and hope you enjoy Richie Incognito. Thanks so much, everyone. 
Well, the band needs no introduction. It's Richie Incognito in the house with some game balls behind him, an American flag, and a, uh, a nice bottle of what, what did you say that was again? Well, Casa Azul, Reposado. This is, the, this is the stuff, Tyler. If you're out in the streets, this is what you're drinking. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, it's good to see you, man. Congratulations. On, a, on an NFL career unlike any that we'll probably ever see, right? And I don't oh, think there'll man. be another Richie Incognito. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it was a great run. It was uh, it was nice to uh, it was nice to do the whole ceremony and thing with the Raiders and have my teammates there to support me and have family and friends come in and you know kind of just celebrate a long, crazy, wild career. You know, the the final chapter. How did you come to the decision then? Because we talked on and off, you know, for a while this past year and I, I know you had some health issues and you're getting up there in age, but you still love it. Right. Yep. I mean, you, you were, you, I mean, you still had the passion to play. So how did you come to the decision to step down, step away? You know, I've always had the passion to play. Uh, once you get older and you're a, an older veteran, you know, the, uh, the onus is on staying healthy, being available. And just over the last two seasons, I wasn't able to be there for my guys. You know, I dealt with kind of a, a weird injury in 2020, you know, something that, went un- undiagnosed for a little bit. We couldn't get our hands on it, you know, wound up being a, a bone chip in my ankle, which in the grand scheme of things, isn't too major. Um, and then this year I came back, you know, I, I rehabbed, I came back, I gave it my best effort. And my thinking going into the season was, Hey, if everything goes according to plan, we stick to the script, we have a solid season and I earn another year, then I'll come back. But, you know, if the plan goes uh, sideways or, you know, we get off track, um, I'm thinking I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about hanging them up. So, uh, we got into the season. I had a great camp getting prepared. And then uh, I had a calf injury that happened uh, right towards the end of camp and uh, couldn't get it under control, couldn't manage it, couldn't really get it back to uh, to even ground to play. So about November last year, I was out. I was done for the rest of the season. I had re-injured my calf. And uh, that's when I just started evaluating. Okay, let's let's get ready for the plan that we've had in place for a little bit. Let's, uh, let's hang them up and move on to the next thing in life. It's got to be tough, though. I mean, this is all you've ever known, all you've ever done. Your life is always better and more structured. Like when, when you're with a team, I mean, there had to been a lot of factors that were begging you and pulling you to, to keep keep this thing going, even at your age. Yeah, no doubt. I know once once you start factoring in the age and, and how fast you recover and the demands of playing, um, it's one of those things where, you know, it's the the – when you're young and you're in it and you're fighting for a spot and you're fighting for those contracts, you're kind of ignorant to the fact that, Hey, we're playing football out here with some very large men traveling very fast who are very pissed off. And, um, you know, during the whole process of retirement and stuff like that, like, yeah, can I go back and play? I'll be, uh, of course I can find a team. I can go play. Um, but what's my body going to do? You know, I'll, I'll be ready for spring ball, I'll be ready for camp, but I want to be ready. I want to be able to grind through camp, play in the season. So there were a lot of factors that factored into it. I think if I were retired, you know, five years ago, six years ago, there would have been that, that feeling of um, I have more to give. I could still play. So it kind of came at a perfect time. You know, um, I had a plan in place for retirement. Uh, the, the calf just kept getting injured. And uh, I was ready to, to move on. So everyone's been asking me, like, oh, do you wish you're out there at camp? Do you wish you're getting ready for the season? And the answer right now is absolutely not. I don't, miss, I don't miss camp. I don't miss what the boys are going through right now. You know, it's nice to, uh, to, to relax and go back to school and reconnect with family. I mean, that, you set this up, too. This is a year or two in the making, right? I mean, you knew this day was coming. So you wanted to get school set up, maybe some media opportunities set up. And 
And so this isn't, it wasn't like a surprise. It wasn't a shock. You mentally were kind of putting yourself into that place of not having football. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was younger, I was always scared, you know, what was the plan after football? Because uh, plan B is plan A when you're young in the league and you're, you're trying to fight and earn a roster spot. Um, you know, the, the thinking was, you know, like, okay, when, what if this ends, what am I going to do next? And, you know, there was a lot of anxiety towards that earlier in my career, but I got some good people around me and we worked to, to frame out like what was next, you know, for me to replace the schedule of football, we're going to do school. Hey, down in Arizona State, I'm taking 12 hours, I'm on campus, I'm online. That gives me some sort of structure where I can plan out the rest of my schedule as far as training, golf, media, I'm doing some, uh, some consulting and advising with offensive linemen. So, uh, so yeah, the, the plan was in place. If there was no plan in place, I would be swimming upstream without a paddle right now. I mean, we're going to get into everything, but like, how do you want Richie Incognito to be remembered? Really? Like when, when people hear that name, what should they think? You know, I automatically want people to just think about the guy on the field, the guy that was out there kicking ass for the last two decades in the trenches, you know, take no prisoners. Um, you know, uh, I think it's, it's one of those things, you know, I'll, I'll be remembered by my guys, my guys I played with, my guys that love me, my guys that knew me. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I just want people to know that I love playing ball. I love playing physical ball. I love uh, wearing on people, grinding on people and, uh, having a lot of success. And, uh, I love just the, the, the kind of the team, the group mentality of like us versus everybody. So, um, I hope my teammates can say, you know, I was always ready to answer the bell and, uh, I was ready to play on Sundays. Well, beautiful. We've got a lot of the uh, the go long OGs here. I mean, God, Joe, Mike, Connor, Jim, Colin, did I miss it? Charlie. So, fire away, fellas. You don't want to hear me talk. I'll go first if it's okay with everyone. Richie, how you doing, sir? Um, can you go over what happened? at the end of your Bills career, like you, you took a pay cut from, I remember, and then you like retired and then you came back and it seemed to get really messy. Can you just kind of go over what happened yeah. uh, during that whole thing? Yeah, no, it was really messy. I, you know, I wish that was one of the things I wish I can go back and redo. Um, you know, basically from my end, I was upset with the pay cut. I had uh, signed a contract back when I had signed with the Bills in 2015. I played on a prove a deal. We went through contract negotiations with the Bills at that time, and that was uh, Doug Whaley, Rex, that whole crew. And, um, you know, the, the contract negotiation kind of went, uh, you know, hey, we're going to give you a contract. It's going to be not up to market value. You know, I, on my end, I was looking at other teams like, hey, I can go to the 49ers, hey, I can go to the Seahawks. You know, let's make this work with Buffalo. And the way my, my contract with Buffalo was, it was one high year, one low year, one really high year. So leading up to, you know, um, that offseason, I had thought that I was uh, due for a pay raise. You know, I just played three Pro Bowls. Um, I had raised my level of play. You know, I had, I had done everything that I had done to justify a pay raise. And really, the, that last year, the contract really kind of waited out the rest of the team-friendly contract I, I, I signed with the old regime. So the new regime came in. Uh, they asked me to take a pay cut. And I said, listen, boys, I don't take a pay cut. You know, if you don't want me on the team, you can either release me, trade me. Uh, you know, we went through a couple weeks of renegotiation of a pay cut. Uh, it was one of those things where I was just like, you know what, I'll, I'll take the pay cut. You guys can't find anybody to trade for me. You can't do anything. You're not going to release me. I'll take the pay cut. And in the process of taking the pay cut, I had a lot of family stuff come up. I had some stuff on my personal income come up. 
and it got really, it got really rough. You know, for me, it was the pay cut. I was upset about that. And then, uh, you know, there was a bunch of other stuff that went on in my personal life that kind of took me away from football for a year to allow me to come back. Do you think they lowballed you because of your past and they could say like, well, we gave you a second chance. So here's, cause you were, you were pretty inexpensive for an offensive. I, there's been way no, more offensive. Yeah. No line. Yeah. yeah no, no doubt. You know, my, my whole thing was, listen, I signed a team friendly deal with the team. Um, it gave you flexibility in the first two years. Now when the money I'm actually due to make is due, you want to reduce that number. You know, that didn't sit well with me. It was one of those things where of course my reputation comes into it. Of course, all the bullying stuff, of course, all the, the, the stuff that's gone on around my career has uh, impacted um, the, the money I made. So, yeah, when, when, you're, when you're looking at it from my stance of I've already earned this money, this money is due to me, and then you want to reduce it, well, that's where, that's where the, uh, the issue lies. And, um, uh, and, yeah, it was messy at the end. You know, I was like, fuck you, I'm retiring. It is what it is. But uh, it, was, uh, it was all over the money. You know, I love Buffalo. I love playing there. I love my time there. Uh, it was really fun back in the day playing for Rex and uh, his whole crew. And then going through the transition, playing with Sean McDermott and uh, him being one of the most uh, detailed coaches I've ever played with. So uh, I, I still, you know, it was a me messy end to my time in Buffalo, but I still regard it. You know, that was, that was some of the best days of my career and of my life. I mean, you just kind of referenced it there too, Richie, that you want to uh, get into. Um, I mean, that year, like mental health wise, and you're going through so much off the field, your dad, I think we all can read the news. I mean, we, we saw what reportedly happened what in the hell were you going through then because I, it, I don't know there were a lot of people that were concerned about you I remember talking to Eric Wood at one point he was a little concerned I, I think yeah. at one point you, you even called me and I'm like that doesn't sound like the normal Richie that I remember right. but what, what were you really going yeah. through at that time well yeah there were a lot of factors you know the uh the uh contract restructure was obviously the biggest one and then as that time kind of went on I was having some family issues I had some personal issues and it took its toll on me and I had a mental health emergency. I wasn't, I wasn't talking the same. I wasn't doing the same things. Obviously, I got in some hot water. Um, but yeah, I had a mental health emergency. It was, it was kind of like um, a lot of dominoes falling at once. It was uh, personal life, then the contract, then family life, and all these kind of things jumped on my back. And um, that's, what I, that's really what I, you know, I had I'd, I'd retired. I had went through the whole offseason. I knew I, I kind of wasn't retired. I kept training. And I uh, kept working on myself, and uh, I worked to fight to come back and, and play with the Raiders again. Can you guys hear Richie okay? I don't know. Maybe it's just my end. It kind of turned no, he's, ro robotic. He, he, he's a little static. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, but he's static right now. A little static. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Let me, uh, let me turn on that moment. Is that a little better? That's yeah. a lot of better. Yeah, a lot yes. better. Sorry, yeah, it was it was feeding through my phone. So yeah, yeah. I don't think many people expected you to play football again at that point, though, right? I mean, it, when you're, it's like, oh, here, here, Richie goes again. He's he's done. He's finished. And you played for the Raiders, and you retired a Raider. And I mean, did did you think that you were done at that point? Did could you have imagined playing football more? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the, the thought definitely crosses your mind. You know, I had all that stuff leading up. My father passed away. I had got arrested. And, you know, you're kind of, you know, after that, you're, you're in a crisis mode for a little bit. But then on the back end of that, it was like, well, okay, what's important to me? You know, my family, football, going on with my career. 
Um, if I can get another opportunity to play, you know, that, that is built through the entire offseason. You know, I got another opportunity to play and make the right option to do it. And, uh, you know, thank God Coach Gruden was with the Raiders and Mike Mayock, and they brought me in. They sat me down. They said, listen, we know who you are. We know what you're about. Just come play. And that was a perfect situation for me to go up there and you know, play with Gruden and play with Mayock and to, uh, to be in a, uh, a program where it was so player-friendly, so set up for vets. So it was the perfect, uh, perfect place for me to go. But, yeah, there were times that after all that that I thought I was done. And uh, that's what motivated me to come back. That's what motivated me to get the plan together. That's what motivated me to, to put myself in a good place once I retire. I think we're, we got good volume there. It kind of got robotic again, but hopefully we're in the clear. Uh, yep. All right. Uh, I know we got some folks in here. Just, uh, yeah, let her rip, fellas. Richie, did you ever play under uh, Aaron Cromer in Buffalo? I did. I played two seasons with Aaron Cromer in Buffalo. He is uh, one of the best offensive line coaches I have ever uh, been around. What what makes him so good? I, there's a lot of excitement in uh, in Buffalo with him coming back, and you know how he can revamp the offensive line. Yeah, yeah, no, he's great. Uh, I was shocked that they retained him uh, when uh, the staff went from Rex Ryan over Sean McDermott because Cromer is a very highly detailed offensive line coach. He's really good about technique. He's really good about uh, explaining game plan. Like, hey, this is how we're going to attack them. This is why we're going to attack them. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, this is how uh, the, the game is going to unfold. So I think he's great with technique. He has a really, really easy technique that, that really can kind of apply to a lot of different guys, a lot of different uh, body types. Um, he's highly detailed in the information that you get from him as far as blitz pickups, uh, front identification. You know, he gives the guys a lot of tools to go into the game with. And um, He's really, really great at just the finer points of the game, just the detail, uh, finishing drills, pulling drills. Um, everything has a purpose in his system. And uh, I really think that he'll help those guys, uh, you know, take the, uh, take the next step. Let's see. Um, That's not that audio. Yeah, maybe um maybe try taking off your headphones. Yeah, there could be some interference. Yeah, and just let the audio go through the, the computer instead of your headphones, man. I'm not saying that will work. Joe out. would know. Joe's like the resident happy hour technician. He handles a lot of this stuff. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's uh so, give it right. a one, two, three count, Richie. Yeah, all right. One, two, three. We good? Yeah, it We're sounds good. better. Yeah. Money. All right. Uh, Money. Hey, real, real quick on Aaron Cromer. Um, I mean, that I feel like a million things happened in 2015, and like you getting a shot with the Bills was like the 100, 100th craziest thing. Like, there was a lot yeah. of other stuff happening, including your coach. Uh, yeah. What was, did he have to address that beach chair incident with you guys? Uh, what, what was, what was that like in July and August when he reconvenes and says, gather yeah. around? I have a story to tell about the summer. Yeah, you know, Cromer's a professional. He's a smart guy. So Chrome left it with us. Um, I can't talk about it. Uh, you know, the attorneys are involved. There's going to be a settlement. I, I can't talk about it. So uh, Chrome was able to coach uh, all of training camp. And then once his suspension was imposed, he had to leave. And um, he, when he rejoined the team, we were over in London. We were getting ready to play Jacksonville. And he came in that meeting and he lit us up. He's like, I'm back, boys. You guys are fucking around. I'm here. Um, 
he brought over uh he you know Cromer has a lot of drills where it just it just absolutely gasses you you know he 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 likes to work on a lot of stuff on the field so he brought uh this uh this Crowther machine this Crowther sled all the way from the U.S. and Buffalo all the way to London and I remember our first practice back with Cromer uh full time we were like fuck man we've been on vacation (laughs) we're out there hitting the Crowther but uh no, Cromer's a great coach, man. He's a great guy. He's a great dude. Um, he's He has a ton of knowledge for those guys. Um, I know when I played for him, he helped me take my career to the next level. And um, I know he, he can do that for the offensive line. I know he can get those guys to play well. I mean, just about every offensive line coach has some screws loose. And, I mean, is it Chris Furster with the yeah. cocaine and the Vegas no. and all that stuff? And, I mean, even Dante Skarnecki, the best ever. I mean, he'll – you know, he's got, he's, he's got a little shit to him. You know, you talk to some guys who played for him. Yeah. What, yeah, what is I mean, it about I, that job, you think? You know, I mean, you know, what you're preaching to the guys is you have to be tough. You have to be physical. You have to be mentally tough. You have to be smart. And for an offensive line coach to be a great leader, you have to have all those attributes. You know, you can't roll out some nerd in front of 15 to 20 alpha males who all we do is think about is beating people up, you know? So um, I played for some coaches that were afraid of their own shadow and the offensive line kind of took on that demeanor. And then I played for some coaches like uh, Cromer, uh, Coach Cable, um, uh, Juan Castillo, uh, Jim Turner. And those guys all had grit. Those guys were all smart, tough, physical. Those guys were what they were trying to teach guys to be. So, um, yeah, you got to have a couple screws loose. You know, the offensive line, we're the, we're the, uh, most tight knit group on the team Um, and to be able to communicate to all those guys doing all those jobs at once, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a little screw loose. You gotta, you gotta be like us a little bit. You gotta be a little, a little crazy. Richie, we can probably, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, Richie with the 2015 bill, obviously things went off the rails a bit. And my question is, you know, just from a team perspective, like, when did you know, being a part of it, that, like, shit was going to turn into a circus? Like, did, did that become clear as the public, like, found out when the games started playing? Or, it, like, were there telltale signs before that? Like, when do you know that things are just, like, not normal and it's not going to be a normal year? Yeah, well, so 2015... Um... You know, we, we came in and there was a lot of hype around Rex coming to the Buffalo Bills. You know, it was, it was a I was excited. Guy. Oh, yeah. Blue collar Buffalo guy. He had his entire truck wrapped in uh, the Buffalo Bills logo. Um, so it was a time of excitement. You know, we were coming in. Rex had had a ton of success in the AFC East. He came to Buffalo. He started building a team after, you know, what he identified with, you know, smart guys, physical guys, tough guys. Um, he really enabled us to kind of be pros and be. Uh, be men. Um, but, you know, the, the, I guess, I, I don't know how to term it, the, the dysfunction or the things, you know, that stuff slowly starts creeping in. And, you know, you're kind of ignorant to that fact because, you know, you're so bought in, you're ready to go, but then you like, you see this dysfunction and you see this and then you see this. And really at that point, um, uh, how do I put this gently? You know, really kind of up until that point, the Buffalo Bills organization was kind of still figuring everything out. You know, the the early 2000s, you know, I was there in 09 and things were kind of a mess. And then, you know, it felt like uh, we kind of got on track with Rex and, and things were going. So you're kind of blinded to the fact. But I would say um, 
probably 2015, early 2016, I was like, okay, this is going to be a shit show. You know, we had, we, we came out and the first two games of the year we lost, we lost to the Jets and I forget who else we lost to. Um, they fired Greg Roman, our offensive coordinator. And, um, you know, it was just kind of a, an up and down year. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting um, when dysfunction and things like that come about, you know, is it a, uh, is it a, um, is it a, is it something of circumstance or is this something of a larger problem that we eventually got to where, you know, we were losing games because we had 11 or 10 people on the field on defense. Quite a memory. It's funny you said 2016 was, you know, the bigger shit show because 2015 felt pretty wild. I mean, give give me a little recap because, because, you know, there's, there's so, there's, there's so much that we pick up as players. There's so much that you have time to pick up and and talk about out there. I mean, oh God, the the 2015, 2015 felt like that was Mario Williams like year. Like it it definitely seemed like Rexton like him, vice versa. And that was like the biggest thing I can remember. And I, I don't know when the Chrome Shady, was. Chip Kelly. Yeah, Shady's. Oh, yeah. Started Shady. at the orgy party. Right? The orgy yeah, party. The orgy party. Yeah. Richie, did you go to the orgy party? Come on, admit it, you went there. <laughs> oh, man, I wasn't invited. I wasn't invited. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you know, like like as a player, you know, that, that stuff really, you know, we hear about that stuff, but that doesn't take big impact with us. We're so focused on the mission. Um, you know, for me, I think 2016, where things really became, started to unravel because we had a whole year in the system, 2016 kind of came around. Um, I know the guys in the defense were not happy. Uh, the guys in the defense, uh, felt like there were, um, too many, uh, cooks in the kitchen. You know, I think at all three levels of the defense, they were having communication breakdowns. And then that led to, to stuff, you know, like guys like Mario Williams to check out and guys like that, because, they had just come from Jim Schwartz, 4-3 defense. They were all putting up huge sack numbers. Now they come to Rex's defense, which is a 3-4 multiple look with guys blitzing from different positions, you know. And we had some, you know, premier pass rushers that were like, why am I not – why am I dropping on third and six? Why am I not rushing the passer? So, um, yeah, 2015 was like, okay, we're in the honeymoon phase, and then 16 is when the shit hit the fan. Isn't Rex just – it's such a dichotomy where players – love him i mean his motivational speeches are are epic right and and there is that element to rex ryan and then you know he gets up on the whiteboard or you know however you guys are breaking down schemes and everybody in defense hated it (laughs) yeah they loathed it yeah they they didn't like the scheme they didn't like how it was being taught um i remember (laughs) we had a meeting once and we had a call out session and they were calling out jerry hughes um for making a mistake and I was listening to them explain it to Jerry and I was trying to put myself in Jerry's shoes. And like, I was, I was hearing how they were explaining. It, I was like, well, I would have fucked that up too. You know, the running back had motioned out of the backfield and it had changed the whole half of the defense on the field. And like, so yeah, there was, a, there was just a bunch of communication breakdowns. Um, the one thing about Rex's defense is um, you can never really prepare for it because you don't know where they're coming from. It's kind of like, you got to get in the game, see a couple series, see how they're going to hit you that week. Um, but what really kind of hurt us was our guys were confused as well. You know, our, our guys, you know, I had a lot of guys coming to me to talk to Rex, you know, to simplify the defense. And I'm like, dude, you got to give me some more information than that to go talk to Rex. But, you know, a lot of guys were uh, were confused or not into it or not bought in. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's pretty hard to change when the year before they were just running right at right at the quarterback and right. kicking ass, right? I mean, right. I, 
Yeah, you know, in that in that in that Jim Schwartz wide nine four three scheme, it's attacking. You know, those guys are taught to pass rush and then react to the run. So when you're always in that go mode and you're, you know, you, it's a it's a it's it's a craft. You know, you you build your craft over the spring, you build it over the fall, and then when you get to the the games, you bring your best stuff. And when you're a guy who's going to put your hand in the dirt and get all after the quarterback and then you're dropping or you're blitzing or, you know, you're, you're doing all these weird schemes. I think, uh, you know, a lot of guys just kind of tune that out. Including Mario. Mario wasn't on board. Safe to say. Uh, yeah, no, Mario was definitely not on board. He was, uh, he was one of the biggest detractors, man. Mario, uh, Marcel was going through his stuff. You know, we had a lot of guys over there, you know, Kyle Williams was kind of holding that whole group together. You know, we would, we would come up, we would practice against him in the fall and we'd be getting ready. And Kyle would have to tell everybody what to do up front. He'd be like, you do this, you do this, you do this. And so me and Wood would sit there and we'd be like, we know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> hey, Richie. Richie uh, I, oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, was just, I, I know you only had a short time with him, but I'm just wondering your initial impressions of uh, McDaniels and his second go around as head coach. It's been great, man. It's honestly been great for our guys. Uh, you know, I think when whenever you change cultures or you change staffs in the NFL, you kind of go from one extreme to the other. And what the Raiders are going through right now is the extremely player-friendly coach, vet-friendly coach, and Coach Gruden to now McDaniels where there is no real hierarchy. Everybody's earning a spot. Everybody is learning from the same um, same starting point. And a lot of the jobs are open and we have a lot of open competition, but coach McDaniel brings a whole nother level of detail to the game um, where uh, a lot of coaches are lacking. You know, a lot of coaches will get up there and give you a great pump up speech and uh, be able to come up with all these cool designs and, and do all this stuff, but actually teaching the guys about the game, teaching the guys about situations, teaching the guys how not to lose the game. Uh, it's been huge. And seeing them in the preseason and seeing them go in and game plan, seeing them have success running this new scheme, uh, it's really exciting for us. It's really exciting for the Raiders. You know, the AFC West is going to be an arms race this year. Um, and, you know, the rest of the AFC is extremely tough as well. So uh, our guys are excited. You know, it's, uh, it's the Patriot way. Everybody's got to buy in and uh, everybody kind of, uh, you know, gets kind of everybody's on the same level. Uh, but you know, we're excited to, we're excited to see the boys go make some noise this year. It seemed like, um, you know, when, when Derek Carr would catch a lot of hell, you know, nationally, you genuinely loved this guy as, as, as a quarterback. What, what's, um, I mean, who's the Derek Carr that, that, you know, what, what's something about him that people don't really know you think? Yeah, I mean, with Derek Carr, what you see is what you get. You know, he is a uh, very, very, very uh, – he's a, he's a great player, he's a great teammate, and he's a better friend. And what people see in the, the slander that gets tossed at Derek is it's not necessarily on Derek. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, kind of – like we were talking about with Buffalo before, we're talking about Oakland, now Las Vegas – you know, a lot of bad draft picks, a lot of free agent signings that didn't go wrong. And I think that energy gets addressed to Derek. And Derek is a guy who's the ultimate competitor. He, uh, he, he loves to compete. He loves to prepare. He has his guys' backs. Um, he is just a, he's just a really, really, really good man. 
And when you see his stats and what you see what he's done over the years with kind of a limited receiving core, limited run game, limited offensive line at different times, uh, just to see him get better and better and better. You know, we love to see it. We see all that slander out there. We want to protect Derek so that Derek can put up the numbers. Um, And I think the world is finally coming around to seeing Derek uh, for who he really is. You know, we were faced with an incredible set of circumstances last year. Uh, losing Coach Gruden, uh, the Henry Ruggs deal, Damon Arnett, we kind of had our own crisis situation. And, uh, you know, Derek just was the same guy he was every day, uh, a great leader, super consistent. And I think people got a taste of that in the media from what I've been seeing my entire time with him and why I ultimately love him. He's, he's a great fucking guy. Howell raising Richie Incognito and God-fearing Derek Carr, thickest thieves. Ha, 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 man. We've been talking forever. We played in a couple of Pro Bowls together, and uh, we were in Hawaii one year, and we were like, man, it'd be great to play together. It'd be great. Because, you know, I have that killer instinct. I love to compete. And uh, when, I was, uh, when I was signing with the Raiders and going through the process, he's like, man, it's going to be real. We're actually going to get to play together. So that was really cool. Hey, Richie, uh, one question. I, I know you signed with the Raiders, I think, in June of 2019. Yeah. That was when Antonio Brown got there. What happened through your whole thing when you got there and that whole thing, what happened with him? Was he crazy? Yeah. What happened? I mean, it was just a mess. It, it, was, it was really a mess from the get-go. Um, you know, you got you to think of, you know, Coach Gruden and Coach Mayock. Those guys want to empower players. Those guys want players to be themselves. Those guys – want uh want want guys to feel like men and they make their own decisions with Antonio you know it was just a series of bad decisions after bad decisions um you know I really you know I feel for Antonio but I, I think he just got to a point where he thought he was bigger than the game he thought he was bigger than the team and he could do all this stuff that all of us on the team would would never do you know um fly home in the middle of training camp uh, you know, just, just a lot of crazy stuff. But I think, you know, with Antonio and the Raiders, um, I think he thought he was bigger than the team and some of his actions rubbed the team the wrong way because the team fully had his back. They had his back for four months of really wild stuff. And then once he started to disrespect the team and he had the blowout with Mike Mayock and uh, the thing with Gruden, um, you know, it was, it got to a situation where they couldn't support him anymore. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been one of those things where it's kind of been a car wreck from, from there on out. As a player, do you, did you at all go up to him and say, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, <laughs> like, like, what are you doing, bro? Or like, are there moments when like, yeah. I mean, did you do it with him? Or are there moments in your yeah. career that you can remember you were like, yeah, you know, it's, that? well, so again, I played on in a couple of pro bowls with Antonio and Gruden knew that. So when I went on my visit, he saw me talking with Antonio. So they put my lockers next to Antonio. And so, you know, a guy like Antonio, he's such a superstar. He's got so much stuff going on off the field, you know, shooting commercials, doing all this stuff. So, you know, my thing was I would just check in on him like, hey, bro, how's it going? You know, nobody's allowed in the NFL locker room. And this dude would have like five dudes standing in his locker after the after the practice. So it was always like tough to get with him. But, you know, Antonio's a great guy. He's he's a positive guy. So we always kept it really positive. But um, yeah, towards the end there, uh, I for, I forget. You know, he kept he kept leaving camp and flying back to Florida, and then coming back and leaving and flying. And I had a talk with him. I was like, "Hey, bro, that's one thing you can't do. You can't leave. I know you can't practice right now, but you can't leave." And uh, two days later, he left, and you know, it was one of those things where it was uh, it's not good. 
I see uh, Connor Kennedy has his hand up. What's up, Connor? Oh, Sorry, I'm off. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How are you doing, man? Um, so one question I had, obviously, the last year you were on the Bills, it's 2017. And among the things that happened that season, obviously, you guys broke the playoff drought. But the other more infamous thing is Sarai being benched for Nathan Peterman for that yeah. Chargers game. I was just wondering how the locker room reacted to the benching and also what the aftermath of that was like from inside the locker room. I'd imagine wasn't like a popular decision when it happened. Yeah, that definitely wasn't a popular decision when it had happened. Um, it was, it was incredibly tough because the decision was made and we had showed up for our Wednesday meeting to start the week and we were going to a team meeting. We got pulled aside. The coaches were like, listen, we're going to let Nate start this week. Uh, Tyrod will come off the bench and uh, that's how we're going to roll. So, you know, as a company man, as a team player, you got to be like, all right, fuck it. We're rolling with Nate. Let's go. Um, I was excited about Nate. Nate had tore it up in the preseason. Nate looked great in practice. Um, so it was like, all right, we're kind of in the middle of the season. We need a little juice. Let's throw Nate out there. And uh, that quickly <laughs> that quickly unraveled. And, uh, you know, I was hoping Tyrod would have come in earlier. You know, Tyrod wound up coming in, in the second half. We wound up fighting our way back, almost winning that game. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was, that, that's one of those events that happens and there's a lot of murmurs in the locker room, a lot of people questioning that decision. And then when it didn't go right, uh, that was, you know, it led to more doubt, more questions. Yeah, that's a hard one. It just is, it's hard to forget that as good as things are in Buffalo, right? I mean, Josh Allen could win MVP, the team could win the Super Bowl. I mean, it all began with the head coach in his first year, starting yeah. Nate Peter. And then he's the opening day starter the next year. He's the week one starter. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I know. Yeah, no, it was, it was a crazy deal. You know, it was a crazy deal. Cause obviously I love and trust and respect Tyrod. The decision came from a way up higher than us. So we rallied around Nate and uh, I'll remember being on that field and he threw the first one. The first one was bobbled or something. It wasn't his fault. Then he threw the next one. Then there was a pick six in there. And then I was like, okay, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, come on, like, let's go. So, um, yeah, that was interesting. My brother has, like, this affinity for Nate Peterman. He loves Nate Peterman. I love Nate Peterman. I was with him in the Raiders. I love Nate. Um, uh, don't necessarily uh, love his on-field production, but hopefully he'll get an opportunity to kind of uh, make up for that. He's with Chicago, right? He's still in the NFL. He's employed. Yeah. He's employed. I mean, Nate's got it. Nate's Nate. Nate can make all the throws. I think you know Nate's Nate's biggest thing is confidence. It's having a little bit of that dog, a little bit of that gunslinger. You know, Nate is a very uh, very very cerebral guy, uh, very nice guy, awesome guy. Um, but he needs a little bit more of that fucking in there and just chuck that thing in there. And uh, you know, there, there, there's so much there's so much to speak on just about the mentality of being a, a, an elite pro player. You know, you have to have the, the smarts, the toughs, the grit, but a lot of you has got to be able to just go lay it on the line, like say, fuck it. Here we go. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just doing this training camp tour. I don't know if you know, Pete Prisco, uh, we were at the Colts practice and we're just going through different quarterbacks. You know, Pete, he's, you know, he gets all worked up. He's like, man, I love a quarterback that just has some balls to him. It just, yeah. says, fuck, just like he just says, fuck it. It goes out there and doesn't yeah. give a shit. Like some guys have that and some guys just don't in their personality. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you can't give it to somebody. 
No, you know, that, that's what, that's, that's what you kind of have to be working on as you're growing up in the league. You know, you get in there as a rookie, nobody has any idea what's going on. You're, you're a rookie. It's, it's completely new to you. And then, you know, your second, your third year, once you prove you can play, then you got to develop that, you know, Hey, how do I just go out there and cut it loose on Sunday? And that's, that holds back a lot of guys. I've seen a lot of guys careers end over that, that like they can't just cut it loose. You know, you have all these big guys that come in, you know, they, they look like Tarzan play like Jane and you're like, bro, just cut it loose. You're a physical specimen. So it's uh it's one of those traits that you can't give to somebody. Like you said, you gotta, you gotta learn that. We got a lot of folks in here. So just, just fire away. If anybody uh, has a question or. Yeah, I'll go over Richie here. Uh, Richie, how, how'd you feel about what happened with Gruden with getting fired? The emails, like, how was that like taken in the locker room and. Yeah, I feel like you should have gone. Yeah, no, it was it was terrible. It really was. You know, it was blowback from a, another investigation that the league was conducting. Uh, they protected Daniel Schneider, and then they selectively leaked Coach Gruden's emails, and uh, just kind of it's kind of a crazy deal. It was crazy unfair. You know, the the first set of emails had come out, and Coach Gruden addressed them with us. I think all the guys on the team handled it really well kind of going back to the Peterman situation. Usually when stuff like that goes on, there's a lot of murmurs. Uh, with the Gruden thing, you know, he, he told us about the emails. He told us what he intended to by his meeting, and we took him at face value. Uh, the guys moved on. We played a game that week, and then Monday more emails came out. And, you know, it's fucking – it's bullshit. It's, it's complete bullshit. You know, we're going to go after a guy who is an institution in this league um, uh, for, some, for some bad words. So – that didn't sit well with me. I talked to coach a lot. Uh, you know, our concern was, you know, he, when he's out of football, you know, what's he going to do? But um been talking with coach. He's fired up. He's going through his lawsuit. You know, he'll be back. Uh, I'm not sure if in a coaching role, but probably on TV or, or doing something, you know, coach just loves the game and to see him go down like that. You know, I kind of went down under similar circumstances during the bullying deal, but uh, it's a bullshit way to lose your career. I was going to say, Ted Wells, you know, he did a thorough investigation and, and really yeah. brought the facts to the forefront, Richie. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was a railroad job. You know, I, I'd like to, I tell people, you know, Brady got the same treatment. We got the same investigator over the, over completely differing things. But I think the, uh, the, the underlying theme was old Ted Wells was, heard one part of the story, uh, you know, I, I believe, you know, with the inflated balls, you know, came from the league. Hey, we want to bust them on this. And then everything Ted Wells does is find facts to back up the conclusion that they go into the investigation with. So as far as being an independent investigation, it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's a railroad job. Um, and that's why it sucks to see Gruden kind of go under some of similar circumstances. You know, it's, it's not his, uh, you know, it wasn't anything he did while he was the head coach of the Raiders. And uh, if they unearth these documents with these critical, you know, bad words in them, you know, it should have been addressed uh, in a different setting instead of leaking it to the uh, newspapers. Well, and you, and you're the first one. I mean, when we first met, it would have been fresh out of your exile, your first exile. And, you know, you're the first to say, you know, I'm not a reclamation, you know, project here. I I don't want, you know, the feel good sob stories. I mean, you've, stood by some of the language used in that report, right? But yeah. it is something to take one world, detail from one world that's one side and then drop it onto the general public, right? It, 
And see, yeah. that, that's where I had, I had a problem with that, even in the moment before I even got to know you at all. It, it, it's, it's, it's a, the football locker room is a strange place. It's a different place it than yeah. the normal society that we all function in day to day. You know, I just think with the whole bullying thing, it just got so blown out of proportion from the get-go. You know, the, the allegations were made, the team went through, they interviewed everybody, they talked with me. Was there some bad language? Absolutely. Did we pull some crude jokes on each other? Absolutely. Did I ever lay hands on anybody? Uh, no. Did we ever do anything that broke the law? No. Did we do anything? You know, what the conclusion was that we did everything to drive him away from football. And in fact, the story is we had a mentally ill guy, Jonathan, who didn't fit into the locker room, who didn't fit into the culture, who was really feeling the pressure of the NFL on him. Um, We had me, who was his best friend at the time, his only friend on the team. And basically, they just took our friendship and turned it on on uh, upside down on one another and every little text or little barb or anything I sent him was then kind of shown or put into the investigation to bolster the fact that he was bullied. So, you know, I think when I look back on it, I think things could have just been handled in house. Um, you know, the dolphins did their investigation. They came back to me a couple of weeks later. They were like, we found nothing. We, we like, we really found nothing substantive. And then you had tell Ted Wells come in and find basically some bad words, you know, some, some challenging scenarios of a young professional athlete. But, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the NFL locker room is definitely an interesting place. Um, what I take away from that is I know my teammates in Miami knew the story. They had my back. People close to me knew what happened. And that's why it was so great with Buffalo. When I came in, it was under Rex, Doug Whaley. I had, flown to Florida and spent time with Terry and Kim Pagula. We spent like two hours together just talking and for them to give me an opportunity to come back after that exile or year suspension or whatever you want to term that uh, it was great. And it, it really could have happened in a better place. You know, Buffalo, New York, blue collar people. I'm a blue collar guy. I work hard. I'm an East coast guy. Um, so it really was, it really was kind of like a storybook ending, you know, to be able to come back from that and, and go to Buffalo and kick some ass. Because a lot of the background on Jonathan came out after the fact and like his upbringing, I forget how that came out, but yeah, a year or two later, you know what, if, if you still ask me and you still ask anybody, Jonathan's still a friend of mine. I haven't talked to him since this went down, but this guy was my friend. And that's what I think kind of got lost with all the bad words, you know, bully, racist, homophobic, misogynistic, all this stuff that I got labeled with. But then there's the actual story of, this kid came in from Stanford. He was a great kid, hard worker, uh, didn't say much. Um, obviously had some things going on behind the scenes with mental health and, you know, it affecting him coming into work and being able to produce on the field. Um, and, uh, yeah, so for his two years there, I mean, I was his only friend. I was the only guy he talked to. The organization would come to me and ask me how he's doing. And so when he left, it was bullying, you know, it was, it was a bullying deal. I was like, this couldn't be farther from the truth. Like we all know, we all know the truth. Um, you know, the, the dolphins were, were afraid of his mom. His mom was an attorney and they were thought they, you know, the dolphins thought they were going to sue everybody and it was going to be real messy. Uh, also his mom is a workplace harassment attorney for Toyota. She's been there for 28 years. She has written numerous articles on workplace harassment. And then this whole friendship, gets classified as workplace harassment 
Next thing you know, I'm on TMZ about talking, you know, going over my text messages. <laughs> and then we're uh, if you, down in Scottsdale, Arizona. For Richie, if you, if, we're getting sushi. Yeah. Sorry, Joe, sorry. go ahead. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know, right? That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> with, with Jonathan Martin, if you could talk to him today, what would you say to him? Oh, man, I would just be like, bro, are you fucking okay? Like, what is going on? You know, I can forgive him um, because I know what what happened. But, um, you know, I think I would still try and take the same the same relationship. I would I would try and help him. I was trying to help him assimilate to the offensive line at the Miami Dolphins. Were we a rowdy bunch? Absolutely. But, um, you know, I just hope he's okay. I just hope he's able, you know, I, I read something. Uh, uh, they, uh, they had somebody reach out to me. They're doing a documentary on the whole Jonathan Martin life story, the bullying incident. I said, you know, no, I, I wouldn't like to be involved. And then my, my lawyers got involved and they, they read a bunch of articles, you know, how he's still has like crippling mental illness. He can't find a job, this, that, and the other. Um, I just want him to have a, a purposeful life. I just want him to, to, to find himself and be happy because he is a good kid. He's a hardworking kid. I think that this situation just kind of got out of control on both our ends and we really couldn't kind of rein it back in. You can share that night in Scottsdale if you want. Oh man, go ahead. You tell it. So I was at Bleacher Report, I want to say. I mean, do you remember the year? I don't even remember what year it was, Richie. This was, this was, I was going through my contract negotiation with the Bills. This was 2018. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I think I was down there actually for um, that story on Jamal Williams, maybe coming out of BYU. He was training down there, but we uh, were like, you know what? We got to connect just bullshit, see how life's going. So we get to a sushi restaurant right in Scottsdale. Super nice place. Like, yeah, top of the line. That's all. That's all, you know, and you ordered a bunch of sushi, right? You put in the order and before the food even arrived, your phone lights up and yeah. you take it from there. Yeah, my phone, you know, this this was uh, three, four years after, uh, five years after the, the thing had went down. I had not had any contact with Jonathan Martin. Um, and we were sitting at dinner, and then the picture comes across my phone. Someone sent me a picture of a, 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 a bed with some shotgun, shotguns on it, shotgun shells, talking about how uh, he was going to get revenge for bullying. And... Um, you know, this, this was kind of telling because not only did he put me and Mike Pouncey, who came out through the investigation to have kind of led the thing, but he went all the way back to high school. He tagged two guys from high school that he hadn't talked to in 20 years, tagged them in the message of like, I'm going to kill them. So you and me are at dinner. I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what's going on. You know, this is just a, I, I, someone from Miami had sent that to me. And I was like, is this even real? So I went home, uh, called the Buffalo Bill security, called the NFL security, called the cops. They came over. Um, I, I fell asleep that night. There was a cop car in front of my house. I woke up and uh, Buffalo Bill security was like, yeah, you have to evacuate your house. He's in a car. He's driving your way. He has guns. They broke into his house, all this crazy shit. So me and my dad and my brother had to load up in my truck and we had to drive up to Northern Arizona to go meet an FBI agent and uh, camp out at this hotel. And by the time we had gotten up there uh, to Northern Arizona, uh, he was caught and then we can go home. So it was, uh, that was, that was definitely one of the dominoes in 2018 that was pressing on me. Uh, That was new territory for me, a death threat. 
Yeah, I remember you looking around the restaurant like, is he here? Like, Dude, I thought he was, as soon as I saw that, I thought he was coming in the restaurant, and I was scared. And I, I had no clue until you said it on that last happy hour that he, yeah, you, you were told he was en route with weapons yeah. to deliver on yep, that promise. I, how, co- how come yeah. he wasn't arrested? So uh, he he had sent out the tweet. He had went around, I guess, from what I understand, he had bought a bottle of alcohol. He was driving around and he had driven west to come to Arizona. But his mother got in touch with him and said, listen, you need to check in somewhere because the police are looking for you. So he went and checked into a hospital. And when he checked in the hospital, he said something about guns or something like that. So then the cops went there and apprehended him at that point. But this was the next day, you know, this had happened late at night. Uh, you know, obviously law enforcement has due process. They can't just go busting into his apartment. They went into his apartment. It was a real bad scene. He had writing on the walls, you know, he was, he was, he always had mental issues, but anyway, yeah. When I got that text at about eight 30 in the morning from Buffalo bill security, like, Hey, here's a guy, here's a number to a guy in the FBI. You have to leave your house. Jonathan Martin is headed towards you in a red Hyundai Sonata. And it was like, okay, <laughs> let's go. Yeah. What's going through your head right then? Fuck. I hope he's not here. You know what I mean? Like shit. I was worried about my family. I was worried about, I was worried about my brother. I had my brother at my house. My, my dad, I had my dog, you know, they said, leave your house. And we bugged out real quick. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was wild. That was, that was, that was very surreal. I'd say so, man. <laughs> Mike, I'm not sure that you really segue away, away from that, but I do have a totally unrelated question for you. Uh, you know, one of the things I try to appreciate as I get older is that as a psychotic Buffalo Bills fan, that players and people in the organization don't necessarily feel every little breeze the way that we do, right. you know, watching from afar. And I was really struck when they, when the bills brought back Aaron Cromer this year yeah. and you, know, you were with him and Rex. And when the whole beach chair incident went down, you felt at the time, like, yeah, this is Rex's bills. That tracks. Right. That makes enough sense, you know, but for McDermott to bring him back felt very un McDermott. I don't mean that in a good or bad yeah. way. I was just very surprised by that. So you were there with Cromer you you had the year under McDermott is that surprising to you or is it just like for a guy like me watching the reports about Cromer none of that actually matters yeah. you know if you're in the building yeah you know I think with Cromer he's just got such a good reputation and he's so good with offensive linemen he had the blip in 2015 where he punched the guy and it turned out to be a 14 year old kid <laughs> but um <laughs> It made sense but, at the time. It really felt okay. Sure. Yeah. You know. You know. I, I think. You know. I just think Cromer. He's he's a great guy for the team. He's he's really is. You know. He's a guy in this league who has coached offensive line, who has been an offensive coordinator. He's a Sean Payton guy. He understands the game at a very high level. And I was I was disappointed when they didn't retain him after the 2016 season because I said, listen, th- this is the reason why we've been doing so well. Um. So to bring him back, I'm not shocked. You know, he had he had a little blip on the radar in the NFL world. We all have a couple of blips, but I think I think his um, his reputation and what he brings to the organization outweighs what happened in 2015. I think I really really think that guys like Deion Dawkins, uh, you know, with with the Bills, it's it's kind of 
uh, offensive line by committee. You know, you're always rolling in guys. They're still trying to find their, their five up front guys, solid starters. But I think guys like Dion, it'll help take him to the next level because it'll, it'll have Dion thinking next level blocking, next level finishing, next level uh, on the plays that we run. So um, I'm glad, I'm glad Chrome's back. You know, look, look what Chrome did in Los Angeles. He was in Los Angeles with those guys with McVeigh and Goff, and they were developing that offensive line. He left a year early, but that offensive line protected for a Super Bowl winner. Why do you think the good offensive line coaches move so much? You know, like Kroger does have a sterling reputation. The guy yeah. you know, was two, three years, and he's on to the next thing. You know, I, I, I think maybe because the offensive line coach is directly tied to the offense coordinator. And, you know, it's all about, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know in the NFL. So when the coordinator gets kicked out, boom, you automatically start, okay, head coach, who's the coordinator? And then he picks who he trusts. He picks who he's worked with. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's a revolving door, but it's, it's on that end, it's really about relationships and about who you know and about who you're going to get in with. Um, because again, I would have hired Cromer in 2017 off the 2016 staff. But when you're going through something like that, I think that that whole staff is kind of like nuclear to the new staff. You know, we don't want to bring over the dysfunction or whatever. So a lot that plays into it. Hey, Richie, uh, question about the Bills when you were there. Actually, the first time around, you were there in 2009 for like a cup of coffee. And I remember Kavika Mitchell, I think that's how you say his first name. When you got signed, he tweeted something like, Biggest mistake, that guy's a bum, which I think if that happened today on Twitter, like the whole place would melt. Do you remember like how that happened? Did you guys talk about it when he, when you got in the locker room? Was he cool? Yeah, you know what? I, I had obviously competed against Kawika, uh before I got there. You know, I got there and then I saw all that kind of going on. And I really, you know, that, that kind of stuff is outside. Uh, I know that guy did not come up to me and say one fucking word. I will tell you that. He didn't say a word to my fucking face, but, uh, but no, yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. I was there like the last three or four weeks, you know, you see like someone's talking shit. Okay. Whatever. You know, I've, I've obviously learned to brush that off. Uh, but yeah, he didn't, he didn't say much to me. And then he was out of the league in about six months. So. Did you want to say something to him? You know, I, you know, it was kind of a crazy deal. Cause I cut, got cut by St. Louis. I had come over and, so there's a lot going on when you get cut week 13 and you have to pack a bag and go to Buffalo. I landed in Buffalo on Wednesday night. Uh, my bags didn't make it. I went to practice Thursday. We did a walkthrough on Friday and they told me I was starting against the Patriots on Sunday. So uh, a mean tweet was not bouncing around in my, uh, my head at that moment. <laughs> yeah, Brian Brom is your quarterback the next week in Atlanta, right? You know, there's, there's a lot. No, it was, it was, I wasn't it fits. It was, it was fits. It was, Fitz, yeah, yeah. Trent, I think Trent was. Well, no, Trent was still there. Yeah, it was Fitz, and then it went back to Brom. Yeah, and then Trent, I think, had like one game against New England for like a day, and he got killed. Like, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it was like that. You had yeah. To on your team though. That must have been. He must. Have yeah. been, did you guys? Yeah, talk I at enjoyed, all, or? Yeah, I enjoyed. I enjoyed spending time with To. You know, I was I was new to the team, and I had I had known very few people. I knew Wood a little bit. I knew Kyle Williams a little bit, but To was kind of one of the guys that I knew the best. So I was just kind of hanging with him. Um, you know, I was only there three or four weeks. I hung with Marshawn, I hung with T.O., got to know Wood a little bit. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was those were wild times. I remember we went into that Indianapolis game, the last game of the year, and Fred needed 180, 210, some sort of 
crazy number in rushing yards to get his first thousand yard season. We went out there and we beat the shit out of Indy in the snow and he got it. I was at that game. I froze yeah. my ass off and got wasted. It was, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got a question about the locker room and this is, this is actually kind of a political question and no, I'm not going to ask you who you want in 2024 or whatever, but <laughs> Joe's you're... pretty right wing here. Joe's pretty right. Oh, wing. right. Right wing. No, bro. <laughs> you, know, you, know who I, you know who I want to run in 2024? The Rock? Ooh. Hunter Biden. Let's get Hunter Biden on the ticket for 2024. Nah, I don't want any siblings involved. No. Uh, but I have a question. So I wanted to know about, like, do how has politics in the locker room, like, I'm not talking like, I'm talking like actual politics yeah. change when you came into the league in like the mid 2000s to now? Because I feel like we're in the same age bracket, basically. And I feel like in the mid 2000s, no, I didn't talk about politics with anyone. Right. And then now, like, everyone talks about it. And I feel now people don't want to hear other people's opinions on it. I just wondering, you're a political guy. I know like, you, you went to, you, you've t- talked about it before, but how has it changed? Like, do you watch what, did you watch what you said towards the end? Or were people talking about it more when you were younger? And then now people are like, fuck that shit. I don't want to talk about it because yeah. I don't want to piss the wrong side. How, are, how do people talk about politics in the locker rooms? Yeah. It's, it's a melting pot, it seems. Well, I think I think the one thing that you go back to is, you know, uh, a lot of people don't want to listen to each other's opinions. And in the locker room, all those barriers are kind of broken down. It is a melting pot. It's it's literally us against the world. When you boil it down and you have 53 guys, plus your practice squad guys, plus your coaches, it's us against the world. So I think once those barriers come down, you can kind of have critical conversations and talk about life events and stuff. Again, yeah, in the early 2000s, even, even through the 2010s for the most part, a little part of them, um, politics wasn't a big issue. When I got to Buffalo, it, it really had become a burgeoning issue because there was so much sway going both ways. And, uh, you know, we had some long, hard talks about uh, flag protests and about equality and racism and inclusivity. And I think that it, it kind of went from 2000s to 2010s where no one really talked about it. No one really addressed it to where it became more mainstream for guys in the locker room to actually be talking about these issues, to informing themselves. Um, you know, in Buffalo, Jerome Felton is a, a staunch liberal and I'm conservative and we would go back and forth, but we, we would go back and forth like brothers, like, Hey, you say something to piss you off. I'm going to wrestle you. Or, you know, it's, it's kind of different in the locker room. But yeah, you know, nowadays, um, uh, a lot of guys are informed. A lot of guys have opinions. A lot of guys come from different backgrounds. Uh, that's what's really cool about the NFL locker room. It's, it's a melting pot. We're all in there for one goal, and that is to kick ass and win football games. But, you know, life happens in seven months. So it's always fun to have those conversations with guys. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely got more political as time has went on. I can remember you and Jerome Felton getting into it in the locker room. And it was, oh, I love, to see. I, I, you know what, uh, you know, what? Felton, Felton's a great guy. I, I love Felton. Me and him were neighbors for a little bit in Buffalo. Um, he's a great guy, but you know, he's, he's, uh, he's dug in his heels on his side. I've dug in my heels on my side. So it makes for very uh, interesting Instagram exchanges. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's okay to talk about stuff in the world without, you know, loathing and hating and wanting to, murder each other after the fact yeah. I, think, I think it's it's okay it's good to have that conversation well that's one great thing about sports with with sports there always comes a time where you have to compete there's the work then there's the competition and 
what it really boils down to when you're competing is you're not thinking about that bullshit. You're not thinking about everything that you're talking about. What's beautiful about sport is you have to go out there with your men from all across the nation, all different backgrounds. You go out there with your team, the other city puts their team out there and we're the best of the best. We are the top of the food chain and we're out there just hammering it out. And there's no politics out there. There's no race. There's no bias. There's nothing out there. There's just a group of men fighting for one another. And that's, what's beautiful about sport. You can take anybody, throw them in that locker room, throw them in that dynamic. And what he does Monday through Saturday doesn't affect me. I care about what he does on Sunday. I loved what, I, what Chris Borland said. And we, we had, I think I threw it in a, a story that I wrote recently where like a year after he steps away from football, concussion concerns, right? You, you would think, oh, he's so anti-football. He said he, he loved it because if you don't hear that audible, you know, from the safety behind you, that 275 pound tight end might just take your head off and you have a concussion. Right. And, you know, it's, there's a special kind of bond in the sport that you don't get in other sports, because if you screw up out there, you're, you're, you're taking, you're getting taken off on a stretcher or worse. Yeah, you know? No doubt. You know, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that players are becoming empowered and players are kind of learning that they can control their own destiny and guys really um, taking control of their career but to be out there on that field and to actually make it down to the 53 guys and then you, you have that whole season to, to build and grow and bond and, and, and do your thing. But it's just – it's really a special relationship. I, I had dinner with a guy in New York a couple weeks ago when um, I played with him at the Dolphins. And we were having dinner with his new girlfriend and we were talking and, and she was just like, wow, the rapport between you two is just something different. And she's like, well, when's the last time you talked? And I was like, you know, we talked maybe three years ago. She was like, wow, I'm just so impressed at like how you guys know each other. And, you know, you finish each other's sentences and you think so alike. And she was like asking like, well, how does that happen? And I was like, me and him have been through some of the toughest times in our life, training camp, season, all this stuff. Like we truly know who each other is because you can't hide that when you show up in December and you can barely get out of bed and barely open your eyes because you're so tired trying to go get a win. You know, me and him know each other on a completely different level. And that's, what's really cool about sports. You know, it's, it's forging those bonds and um, it's uh, you know, us against the world. How, how do you uh, fill that void in retirement then? You know what? I got a great group of guys. I train here at Exos in Phoenix. So I got a great group of guys that I'm around. In the, in the training room, getting that, that or in the, in the gym, in the training room, uh, getting that kind of team feel. And, uh, you know, that's, that will be my link, being in the gym, being with those guys training. And then what I'm doing right now is I'm mentoring a couple offensive linemen in the NFL and in college, just going over tape, technique, things like that. So that's what's going to keep me close to the game. And ultimately, you know, it was great to retire with the Raiders because – Forty-five minute flight, and uh, I've been up. I've been up to camp twice. I'm going up uh, next weekend as well. So that's what keeps me close. Are you worried at all about happiness and fulfillment and, and all of that stuff we seek in life without without <laughs> football? You have a lot going on. I mean, do, are you confident that you do have you know everything lined up where you can be happy in the morning, waking yeah. up, doing what you do? Yeah. You, you know your your happiness is isn't tested until you have to lock yourself away for seven months to play football 
that's the time you worry about if you're going to be happy outside of football. For me, I'm set up. I have a plan in place. I have a bunch of plates spinning in the air. I'm keeping all my options open as far as uh, coaching, media, mentoring, recruiting. Um, so, yeah, I can wake up happy. You know, I left it all out there. I played 17 years in the NFL, three years of college, four years of high school, two years of Pop Warner. So uh, it is satisfying to sit back and be like, listen, I got this football shit out of my system. I loved it. I was into it. But now it's, it's time to take that, that dedication and that focus to something else. What, what is that war story at the bar with your buddies from the field that you love to tell? You know, I, there, there's so much about your life that is known and out there, but is there a, was there ever a battle that you got into with a defense lineman or, or somebody out there that you're most proud of that you can share here? I mean, I think – so back in the day, I played for the St. Louis Rams. I got drafted to the St. Louis in 2005. And uh, I was an Arizona kid. I had grown up here. The Cardinals were terrible forever. And, you know, Cardinals have been shit since they moved from St. Louis. So I'm in the division. I'm in St. Louis. And the Cardinals are starting to get good. And two guys I used to work out with here in Tempe at Athletes Performance, Darnell Dockett and Antonio Smith, they got teamed up with the Cardinals and they started kicking ass. They started winning the West and they started going to, they went to the Super Bowl. You know, they had all that success. And I was in St. Louis just mired in mediocrity. I mean, three win season, one win season, four win season. I mean, it was, it was really bad. And so we went from friends that worked out together to complete sworn enemies on the field. It started with me and Dockett. And then it started, then it was me and Antonio. And I remember uh, it was late in the game. We were playing in Arizona and they had intercepted the ball, scored a touchdown, and they were going to win the NFC West that year. So I'm walking off the field, me and Dockett are going at it. And Antonio Smith comes up behind me and fucking ninja kicks me behind the legs. And I like fall down on the field. So it was, it was always really physical, those two games against Darnell and Antonio. And, uh, you know, that was, that was great times. You know, I was a young, I was a young player. Um, I hadn't proven to myself yet if I could play, you know, you're out there playing with bad technique. You're kind of like holding on at the end of reps. Um, so yeah, those, those, those games will always be uh, marked in my memory of just going out there and competing against two former friends who are now enemies. <laughs> Didn't he like swing his helmet at your head, Antonio? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Antonio signed with uh, Houston. I went to Miami, and uh, we had played each other in preseason. So like, we only got like limited reps to go at each other. So you know, uh, I think on that pass rep, I, I set out there. I put my hand in his face. I was like grabbing him, you know, tossing him around. He grabbed my helmet off of me and I was like standing there and he went to swing it. I backed up. He didn't swing it anywhere close on the film angle. It looks like it was close, but he kind of swung it and he wound up catching a suspension. And, you know, it was just, you know, it's one of those things. It looks close. It looked like he almost connected on the video. I know from the one angle, it does look close. From the other angle, it wasn't bad. He was just kind of like swinging it out of frustration. Um. But yeah, you know, those are those battles where, you know, you, you go in on Wednesday, your first day of the week, and they have the depth chart, and you're like, oh, yeah, fuck this guy. Oh, yeah, him too. Yeah, so it's, I'm sure they were doing the same for me. Who's the, who's the toughest defensive lineman you faced? 
Oh, hands down, Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald's a fucking ninja, man. That guy is, he is so blessed with, with talent, hard work, dedication, grit. Um, he's a, he's a very smart player. He knows exactly what you're trying to do with, with to him. Uh, he can beat you multiple ways. Uh, you know, Aaron Donald is, is the, the top of the mountain. Um, another guy I have a tremendous amount of respect for is uh, Kyle Williams. That son of a bitch is so smart and strong and dedicated. Uh, when I was with the Dolphins and we played the Bills, he knew every time we were running outside zone by some tell in my stance. And so I'd get out there to go run outside zone and he'd go right underneath me and make the tackle. So really enjoyed playing against Kyle. Um, competed against some guys back in the day, Kevin Henderson and Pat Williams when they were at the Vikings, Jared Allen, Brian Robinson, they're all with the Vikings. Uh, you know, as a young player to go out there and compete against Pro Bowl guys, all pro guys, you know, that's when you really prove it to yourself, like, hey, I belong here. Because you come from college and you're drafted and you're like, yeah, I'm in the NFL, awesome, you know, I'm going to make money and play. But then you get to that first training camp and you're like, holy shit, man, this is a totally different animal. So to go out there and play with guys in my young days, you know, against Kevin Williams, Pat Williams, uh, Marcus Stroud, John Henderson, uh, fuck, I played against Warren Sapp, Brian Young, you know, all those old school guys, you know, uh, going out there and, and having a good pass rush rep against them proved to me like, hey, I belong in this league. Fantastic. Anybody else have anything for Richie? Yeah, I got a question, Richie. Um, were you on the Dolphins when they did the hard knocks? In the, yes. I, I looked up for it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I just remember, um, I mean, it's a long time ago, right? But uh, I remember, you know, we talked, you kind of talked about the, I guess, the bullshit, the contradiction, right, between, you know, what came out after in the report. Um, I just remember uh, at hard knocks, uh, they're kind of hazing a, a rookie, right? And they, Someone shaped a dick in, in the guy's head. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. I had yeah. nothing to do with that. Oh, I'm supposed to be bully number one. I had nothing to do with that. I mean, it had kind of gotten to that point. You know, this is 2012, 13, where it was, you know, you know, no real rookie hazing. When I first got in the league, you know, they tied me to a goalpost. They poured water on me. You know, I had to pay for dinners. I had, I had to do all this stuff. And kind of by then they were like, I think before hard knocks, they were like, Hey, you guys, you guys got to take it easy on the rookies. Cause in Miami, you know, we, we shaved their heads, you know, made them do toga stuff. We had to do all sorts of weird stuff. But at that point it was, it was more calming down. And then, yeah. And, uh, in hard knocks, they shaved that dick on that guy's head. And it's like, you know, this is how your organization is portrayed, but, uh, yeah, you know, kind of by that point, you know, all the hazing and, and the rookie bullying had kind of, cleaned itself up by then yeah i just thought it was interesting you know that because because year later two, whatever it was two years later that report comes out and it's homophobic slurs and this guy i'm like you know just two years ago you're on you know broadcasting on hbo to uh, tens of millions of people you know shaving the- yeah you know when i when i was coming up at the university of nebraska um you know this is now considered hazing but when i was a young guy this was your rite of passage you know you go to the University of Nebraska. I got there in 2001. They had won national championships in 1994, 1995, 1997. So when you get to a place like that, this is how things are done. This is how the program operates. So there were two locker rooms. There was the North locker room and there was the South varsity locker room. 
And after spring practice, the freshmen who had went through their whole freshman year, went through the spring practice in the spring of their freshman year, you graduated to the varsity locker room in the South. So after the spring game, all the old veterans would say, hey, you have to pay rent to get into the South locker room, but you can't pay with money. So all of us freshmen are like, well, how do we pay? What's going on? So after the spring game, when you are ready to move locker rooms, you, they move all your stuff down there. You play in the spring game out of the varsity locker room. Then you come in. They stripped us all naked. They had wiffle ball bats with tape. And what they did was they took one by one and they, they beat on you a little bit, threw some water on you. It was okay. But that was your initiation process. Now I think back, if we were to do that now, oh my God, we'd be, we'd be on HBO Sports every night. But yeah, the, the, game, the game changed, you know, from the 90s to early 2000s and then the early 2000s to the 2010s. And now we're kind of where we're at. Um, it's, uh, it's a different game. And you, you kind of just can't get by with like, hey, this is the way we do things. You know, you have to be thinking about the bigger picture. I was going to say, probably good that that stuff doesn't happen today. I mean, that doesn't yeah, it fun. is. It is. It is. It really, it really is. You know, it cuts down on the bullshit. You know, when you're a rookie, you have no idea which way is up. And then you got all these vets. Um, when I got to St. Louis, the vets never did it, but they always would say, your initiation as a rookie is, you know, the night before a two-a-day practice, we're going to take you out and get you completely bombed and you're going to have to go practice the next day. So they kept telling us that. And my, the whole camp, I was like, bro, this is so hard. I can't do this hungover. But but yeah, it's uh, it's good. You know, obviously everyone took it too far. I've probably taken it too far a couple times, but it uh, it helps the rookies assimilate when there's not that that hierarchy coming in. You know, bring them into the fold. Everyone's on the same page. We're working towards the same goal. Go for it. Did there. you ever play a game hungover like early in your career? Fuck no, never. No way. I'm a. Uh, you know what? What I what people always say about the old school guys and about us. I couldn't be out drinking and, you know, doing whatever and then show up and play. You know what I mean? Like if I got a cramp on a Thursday, I was getting IVs and having people fly across the country to manage, to, to balance my chakras, you know, no, I never played hungover. Um, you know, I, I care about the game too much. I care about my, my, my teammates. I care about the guys, you know, we're, we're all fucking in there together. All those coaches, um, you know, we're, we're all fighting for one another's job. So I always had a, a, enough respect for my guys to, to to show up and do my job. Yeah, you had the Zen Den in Buffalo. <laughs> the Zen Den, that's it, yeah. I had the Zen yeah. Den. My apartment was uh, my healing space. You got to come to the healing space. Yeah, that's what, you know, now this is a, we could probably spend another two hours on this, which we don't have. But, I mean, you had your team of people taking care of your body. I mean, as professional as it could be, right? You're, yeah. You had the same masseuse like your whole career or most yeah. of your career. She was there yeah. when I interviewed yeah. you. It's yeah. like, that's, that's normal. That's how a player gets massages, right? Very yeah. professional. This person yeah. is helping this player get on the field. Yeah. You're not, you, you weren't DMing on Instagram to my knowledge. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, no, none of that. None of that, no. Um, no, you know what? I think, I think kind of what gets lost in all the, the, the crazy talk and the news articles was like, how professional I was. I had people that would fly from Arizona, San Diego, uh, come in and work on me. And, you know, the work that we did uh, enabled me to play week after week at such a high level. I mean, it's not easy going out there and beating everyone's ass for four quarters and coming back and being able to practice on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 
and get ready for the next one. So um, I had some really great people around me. I brought in some great people. Uh, and those, those, those people are really who I owe all the success in my career to, you know, keeping me playing at my highest level. But um, I was extremely dedicated. We, we had the Zen Den. You came over. I had Anna, my physical therapist there. Anna. And That's so, right. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it takes a village, man. And I had a whole, whole village behind me supporting me. And, uh, you know, that's, that's who you play for. You know, that's your motivation. You know, all these people that are helping you become the best athlete you can be, you know, you want to give it back to them and go play hard. Who was your, uh, if you have any, if you want to say, your least favorite teammate? Is there a guy you just like, this fucking guy? Is it Mario Williams? Yeah, because I'm gonna guess him. I don't know why. I'm always, always follows Mario Williams, but go ahead. Yeah, there's, there's always a ton. You know, the Mario thing. Um, was I was I frustrated with him? Yeah. You know, the guy had so much talent, and for me, that's a big thing. You know, if you have the talent, you have the work ethic, you can figure out any, everything else. And love Mario as a guy, but you know, he he was frustrated. You know, he was frustrated and. Uh, Marcel was frustrated and I, I felt like that they were kind of bringing the young guys down and uh, do, do I hate them? No. Do I not agree with, you know, how they conducted themselves? Absolutely. But you know, every team, I won't say names. There's always some shitheads on some teams that won't show up on time. Won't work hard. Won't understand the opportunity, the opportunity that they have to actually be an elite NFL football player. So, so yeah, there's, I, I I won't name names, but there's a I got a list of those guys. <laughs> well, you can you can list them off if you'd like, Richie. You're retired, right? Ah, uh, no, heck no, <laughs> no. You let sleeping dogs lie. That's uh, yeah. But you know, it's it's like any it's like any business. You know, you you put your all into it. You see someone not pulling their weight. It it gets frustrating. And I ask real quick, who would you say was your mentor in the locker? Because I hear like you were kind of a leader, obviously. Like, yeah. who was your mentor? Like, who went? Who did you go to? And you. I kind of want because you jumped around a little bit. Like, do you think if you had like a older like offensive lineman next to you, kind of telling you, "Yo, do this," it could have been different for you, like mentally at all. Like, if you had that veteran presence, and yeah, like if you did, you have a mentor at all, like in terms of that in the locker room somewhere. Yeah. So when I got to the NFL, my mentors were Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt. Uh, I got to the Rams, and uh, they, you know, going to the league, they said, "Fine." find some people to model your game after. And those guys were the most professional I'd ever seen. So when I was with the Rams, it was Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt. You know, I was such a wild animal. I don't know how much you could actually say to me, but every team I went to, I found the leader of that team. I became really close with them. I learned from them. And then I learned how to lead my own way. So when I got to Miami, it was Jake Long. Went under Jake Long's wing. He showed me how to do things the right way. When I got to Buffalo, it was Eric and it was Kyle. Those two guys uh, were able to, you know, have real conversations with me, get me going. Hey, you're getting a little out of bounds here. Bring it back. Um, so, yeah, so every team I always had a mentor, always had some guys I've, I've trusted and looked up to. Um, and then, you know, once I got to the Raiders, I was that guy. You know, a lot of the guys on the team had looked up to me and I had provided stability for a lot of the guys on the team. Big plans tomorrow? What's happening tomorrow? In <laughs> tomorrow, it's too hot to golf here in Arizona, so no golf. I, I, I usually have an early tea time. Uh, so tomorrow I'm going to hit the gym. i uh, got a barbecue at the house. And then uh, Saturday night we're supposed to get some rain, so I'm going to tee off early Sunday morning. 
overrated sport. Just a waste. Oh, of this is right. We got to talk you into playing golf. See, you're up there in Western New York where you get about three weeks to play golf. <laughs> you come down to Arizona where we have nine months of great golf weather. I feel like it's just a, uh, a convenient excuse for guy. Well, you're not married with kids, but I feel like it's a convenient excuse for people in that situation to be like, sorry, honey, sorry, kids. I'm going to be gone all Saturday just drinking and bullshitting. And, and what's so wrong with that? You have a five-hour escape to drink golf. with your buddies, talk shit, the drive, jig is up. drive around on golf carts outside exploring nature. If you hit the ball straight, who gives a fuck? None of us can hit it straight. Just, it golf, so what's your excuse now, worst. Tyler? What's your Thank excuse you, for that now? He goes to Hamburg for work. <laughs> right, that, that's about it. Yeah, I, I meet up with Monas and we drink some IPAs, right? <laughs> no wonder you don't need golf. It's, it's the worst because everyone who plays it can't shut up about it. And they yes, brag about yes. their photos. Yeah. I, yeah. I will go into this, like, or he, I'll go into this. Like, in, in Buffalo Twitterverse, like, with a lot of his peers, his media guys, they can't stop talking about it, posting photos. And they all look goofy. I'm, that's the one thing I hate about it. <laughs> many things. They all look goofy. Like, no one wants to wear tight-ass pants that you can see your Johnson in, practically. And, <laughs> and, like, unless you're my wife, maybe. But, like, that's it. Like, no one wants to see that shit. And it's, like, everyone posts. And that's, that's why I hate golf. That's why I would never play golf. If anyone cares, uh, if there's beer at stake, maybe I'll just consider it. If there's a lot of that, but I'll go drink at the bar at a brewery and then go and sweat my ass off. But that's, that's my hot yeah. take. Yeah. I'll be out there with the boys swinging them, but uh, you know, you talk I about it all the time, Richie. Like, are you bragging oh, well, about your golf game? And- yeah, that's well, the thing. I've been, I've been playing. I've been playing since I'm 12. I can go low. Uh, I shot 79 last week, 81, 83. Oh, here he goes. Listen to him. Well, no, but, but, but see, I can go low and depending on a couple strokes, I mean, I could be four over, I could be six over. So I'm actually good. Uh, but yeah, the last two, three years, golf's exploded with COVID and all that. Everyone's playing golf now. I wish they'd all go home. So I get a tee time. <laughs> My, the, I think I went to a course twice and it was for two bachelor parties. Like the, or whatever, maybe it was the day before the wedding. And like for Matt Fairburn, his bachelor party in Toronto, I showed up in jeans. So that just tells you everything. <laughs> I, I, they're like, everybody's looking at me like, what are you doing? Like, like to Joe's point, like, you need to dress up for this. You know what? You, you come as you are. You come as you are. You know, I get it. You guys get sunshine up there for maybe six weeks. You got to come <laughs> down here to the Sun Belt where we get sun eight, nine, ten months a year. You know what, but you you get it, first of all, you don't value it because you can get it any day of the week. And second of all, you can't tell me you have as much fun sweating your balls off in August in Arizona that you would have had on like an off day in week seven playing in Western New York. Like (laughs) in a nice like October sky, Holiday Valley out in Ellicottville or something. You can't you can't tell me Arizona can do that. I'm trying to think, uh what was it? Uh Wanaka? Is that the country club up there? Wanaka? uh over it's over by uh orchard park me and wood used to play there all the time and yeah playing in uh august in uh western new york's a little bit different than playing in scottsdale arizona in august <laughs> any plans to get back here for any reason whatsoever of course i'd love to come back he would try to get me to come back for a game um i'm gonna be tied up with the raiders in school this year uh, doing a lot of stuff with the alumni program, working with some guys on the team, going over tape and stuff like that. I'll be back to Buffalo eventually. I'll hold court. We'll, we'll put it out on Twitter. I'll hold court at uh, Barbell. We'll drink a couple beers, have a couple wings. 
I was going to say, let's do this in person, everyone. I mean, and hey, if, if you're not local, just make the drive over. Let's get together. Sure. That's it. I'll Come back to the parade in February. What's that? I said, come back for the parade in February. Oh, parade. (laughs) I hope you guys do it. I really, I really, really hope they do it. I mean, shit, you guys are primed for it. You got Josh, you got Stefan Diggs, you got everybody going. Um, I hope Von Miller lives up to the expectations and actually has something left in his pass rush. Uh, Those young guys are going to step up. uh, uh, What's the kid? Uh, Espinessa and uh, Rousseau. you know, hopefully they grow up into some pass rushing guys. You guys have all the horses. Uh, just got to put it together and be able to win in uh, January, February. Is there a curse in Buffalo like there was for the Cubs? I, 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 know, right? I know. When you when you play up there and you have so much bad stuff go on, you're like, shit, we might be cursed. But there's no official story, Ben. No, no Billy Goat or anything like that. Okay. I don't know. I would have found him. <laughs> <laughs> Richie, thanks for hanging out this long, man. Great, great to see you. Even better stories. That was that was awesome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Richie. Thanks, Ty. All right, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, Richie. Thanks, everyone. That was a great time.